being an informed woman and an advocate for breastfeeding, that what my experiences were like and how much I had to really demand and ask for and advocate for support. And because I knew I had to advocate or I should advocate, I could. But it made me realize for those that may not have the information, the skills or the capacity or be in a space to advocate, that means they're not getting the support that they need. Thanks for tuning in to Case Confirmed. On today's episode, I spoke with Elaine Fitzgerald-Lewis on the benefits of breastfeeding for both individuals and populations as a whole. Elaine is a Senior Project Director at the Education Development Center with expertise in quality improvement for maternal and child health initiatives. She is also a Certified Lactation Consultant and Breastfeeding Advocate. We covered the challenges to successful breastfeeding as well as program and policy efforts to support those who choose to feed their infants in this way. Thank you so much for having me. As I was working on my dissertation here at BU School of Public Health, through my research, I kept kept coming back to how breastfeeding is such a strong protective factor for improving both maternal and child health. And so I focused my dissertation on improving breastfeeding outcomes, particularly among self-identified Black and Hispanic women through Boston Healthy Start Initiative. And it was really exciting work using quality improvement, engaging case managers through a home visiting program to improve breastfeeding outcomes in the community. Um, And then after I graduated, I was able to continue that work supporting an initiative with Texas Breastfeeding Learning Collaborative. Fascinating. So you've kind of engaged with it from multiple angles. Mm -hmm. What exactly is is breast milk made out of? Sure. So let's see. Breast milk. um, Early breast milk is known as colostrum. So that's a thick yellow first breast milk that comes out and is developed during pregnancy um, and just after birth and includes rich nutrients and antibodies that the baby needs. And then as the As the baby grows, the breast milk actually evolves and the colostrum changes from mature milk. And by the third or fifth day after birth, the mature milk includes the right amount of fat, uh, sugar, water, and protein that the newborn needs. And then as the baby grows, the combination of that fat, protein, and nutrients actually changes as well. So as the baby gets older, there's actually more protein. Whereas when the baby's a newborn, it's actually higher fat. And so it's just fascinating how the breast milk, how our human body creates this life-sustaining product. I think a mom posted a photo of like her breast milk when her baby was well and just you know normal health and then her breast milk when her baby was sick and then she included a little blurb just saying there is actually communication between like the baby's saliva um and the mom's breast to to basically send a signal that the baby's sick and needs more of this and less of this is that true is that kind of like two-way communication something that's been established or is it just well there's definitely a dyad system that's happening between the mother and the child. The mechanism by which what changes or triggers the change in the mother's composition, I am not a scientist or um, can speak to that. I will say though, research has shown that the breast milk does change. Um, And so to that example, when a baby is ill, and most times the mother is exposed to the same germs, 
the mother will create the antibodies in her own system, and then that gets filtered into the breast milk. So the baby then will benefit from breast milk composition that has greater antibodies in it based on what they were just both exposed to, right? So it does change. And that dyad is such an important piece that has benefits that go beyond the composition of milk. The skin-to-skin connection that happens between a mother and a child There is extensive research that shows that when that skin-to-skin connection happens, not only in the first 24 to 48 hours, that helps to support initiation of breastfeeding, but ongoing, it actually has effects on raising certain hormones, important hormones levels of serotonin, oxytocin, that better supports the relationship and the bonding between mother and child. So there's so many benefits to Mm -hmm. breastfeeding. So it's like this feedback loop between the mother, the infant, the environment, the immune system that just is exactly. very dynamic. And it's a su- supply and demand. And so the more that a baby comes to breast, the more the mother is able to produce the milk the baby needs. The less frequently the baby comes to breast for whatever reason, the less the mother is able to then produce because there's a whole process that happens that lets down from the mammary glands into the baby based on the baby's suckling at the breast. Or if pumping happens, if for whatever reason the mother has to use a pump. Um, But we also know that through pumping, it actually doesn't draw down as much as if the baby's nursing at the breast. So there's a lot of research that has gone into understanding how this happens. Um, It's all to say that there are benefits that are well-documented. So that leads me perfectly into my next question, actually. What exactly are the short-term and long-term benefits for both infants and moms when it comes to breastfeeding? Like, what does the most current research show? Um, Especially where on this podcast we talk a lot about public health, um, even, you know, beyond the individual, what are the population-wide implications of breastfeeding? Certainly. So starting with the baby, breast milk is the baby's first immunization. And so when we think about the importance of a baby having the antibodies that she can receive, she or he can receive from the colostrum, and then that continuing, that's the baby's immunization. Um, And it has also been documented that it keeps the child healthier. Fewer infections, um, less risk of chronic disease like type 1 diabetes, childhood leukemia, atopic dermatitis, lower risk of SIDS, which is sudden infant death syndrome. Um, So those are all well-documented benefits when a baby is able to receive breast milk. For the mother that's able to breastfeed, it prevents type 2 diabetes, breast cancer, ovarian cancer, heart disease, postpartum depression in mothers, and also reduces osteoporosis and weight loss after birth. Um, And each year, that a mother is able to breastfeed, it actually decreases her chances of developing invasive breast cancer by 6%. Um, And I had mentioned previously, it also optimizes the mother and child bond, supporting a baby to feel more welcome, secure, warm, comforted, raises oxytocin levels, and that hormone helps to further fuel and support the milk flow and calm a mother. When we think about it on a societal level, um, we also think about that there are um, there is research to show that 
mothers that breastfeed actually, because their baby is less sick, has to take off less time from work which is less demanding on the employers, um, as well as the cost to employers for having women out. Uh, the other thing is the cost, the cost, the actual cost. Um, so breastfeeding saves money. It's calculated to be about $1,500 per year. Uh, so um, is that per like mother infant dyad? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We also know that when we look at formula fed babies, they are at higher risk of certain conditions like a disease that affects the gastrointestinal tract in preterm infants, lower respiratory infections, and asthma, to name a few, um, obesity, and type 2 diabetes as well. So there are some trade-offs. We also know that formula is necessary for some families. So it's not about making a mother feel bad for using formula. It's using what we can and supporting women where they're at. Could you touch a little bit more on how within breastfeeding advocacy, some sometimes there can be this element of shame towards moms who choose to, to formula feed, especially, I mean, I, I think the term breast is best is what the research shows us and whatnot can make moms who frankly are already criticized for so many things when it comes to, you know, raising kids and, you know, life in general. You think about that stigma, what causes it, what... Mm, it is quite complex. And it's sad that we do live in a society where breastfeeding is not currently the norm and that we don't have s sufficient support for women that want to breastfeed. And so much of my work around breastfeeding is actually focused on building the capacity of supports um, through programs like home visiting, where when they are working with a um, mother-to-be and she has said, yes, I want to breastfeed, or I would like more information to make an informed decision on how I can feed my baby, that she can do that because home visitors have the knowledge, the capacity, the confidence to meet the mother where she's at and give her the information so that she can make an informed decision about what is best for her, her baby, her family, her work situation. What does that look like? Um, and, and so, yes, there is stigma out there um, around those that want more mothers to breastfeed because the research consistently shows it. Um, and our work is creating opportunities and supports for mothers that are compassionate and nurturing. Great. Thank you so much. Globally, exclusive breastfeeding through six months is only about 40%. Personally, that surprised me because I've, I've traveled quite a bit in my travels to other countries. I see like public breastfeeding so much more than I would here. So I, yeah, it just took me by surprise a little bit that it's, you know, less than half across the globe. Why, why is that exactly? Breastfeeding is very complex in our day and age. Uh, there's a lot of factors that influence a mother's ability to successfully meet her intention to breastfeed. And so just for your listeners to better understand, the American Academy of Pediatrics recommends breastfeeding for all infants, um, and that would be exclusively for the first six months of life. And by exclusively, that means just breast milk, no addition of foods or waters. One, if a woman doesn't have the supports, like we did 
generations ago where you were surrounded by family, mothers, aunts, sisters, everyone around you to support you on how to breastfeed? What does a proper latch look like? How do you know when your baby is satiated? Uh, How do you know that this pain is not supposed to be there? And working through pain is really an indicator that your latch is not correct. But if a mother doesn't know that, and she's a first-time mom, or even maybe she has other children in the house, and there are other factors going on, that's all going to go against her ability to just continue to be successful with this intention to breastfeed. Then you throw on the formula industry that has marketed quite successfully that they are an equal and sometimes, if not, better alternative to breast milk. That is not true. And so women that are not informed about that will say, well, I tried and it's not working. I have to go back to work or I have to go back to school. Formula is okay. They say it's equivalent. So let me try formula. So, so right there, it starts to then, let me start to just introduce it a little bit. I'll still try to breast milk, breastfeed. I'm sorry. Um, but like we said previously, it's all supply and demand. So the more that your baby is not on your breast and actually taking formula or using a pacifier and being temporarily satiated, either through formula or a pacifier as an example, and they're not at your breast, then your breast isn't able to generate the breast milk that it needs. And then your supply goes down. Then the mother's like, oh, I can't meet my baby's needs. So therefore I need to generate, give the baby more formula. So it then becomes this cycle and sooner the mother and baby aren't able to meet each other's needs. The other thing with breastfeeding is that time is critical. If you don't get supports within that first 24 to 48 hours, whether you're a hospital, and that's why baby-friendly hospitals are really um, a wonderful source because their entire policies and infrastructure are designed to ensure that the opportunities to optimize breastfeeding are there. Um, and could you, for sure. our listeners that aren't um, familiar with what a baby-friendly hospital is, like what, just a quick sure. overview of what that is. So baby-friendly is. hospitals are designated by following what they've identified as 10 steps to baby-friendly, being baby-friendly. So there are things like um, having a hospital policy around breastfeeding, skin-to-skin practice, meaning that the baby is held um skin to skin with the mother rooming in which means instead of having the baby be in a room in a nursery as it was so many generations ago the baby now stays in the room with the mother all of these are evidence-based interventions that help to promote breastfeeding so by being in the room for example we know that the mother starts to learn earlier on what the cues are for feeding like when is my baby hungry Whereas if a baby's in a nursery, she's not going to see that. In that first 24 to 48 hours, it's really critical to just start to get to know your baby. Um, So there's a number of steps. And so hospitals go through this entire certification process, um, and then they become designated as baby being a baby-friendly hospital. And so when hospitals are in place and mothers can get that support, they're more able to initiate. But then your transition home, And if you don't have supports after you transition home and it starts to set in the pain, the exhaustion, the frequency, what do I do? How do I get? And no one's returning your call or someone's not available to see you for another week or you have to go into the office to see someone. That time delay 
from actually being able to breastfeed and breastfeed successfully contributes to women not being able to continue. Right. Right. And I'm sure the anxiety maybe sets in of, oh, my baby isn't eating, my baby isn't eating. So you will just, yeah. Yeah. You will just automatically. Yeah. Like I'm starving my baby. Right. Right. And that then starts to build up other levels of anxiety and anxiousness. And so, yeah. Yeah. It seems like it's just as much psychological as it is a physical. Yes. And that's why I've said it a couple of times, like breastfeeding is complex. If there's a lot of factors that influence a woman's ability to successfully breastfeed, I feel very fortunate being a mother that was able to breastfeed. But I will admit that I was completely amazed as myself individually, being an informed woman and an advocate for breastfeeding, that what my experiences were like and how much I had to really demand and ask for and advocate for support. And because I knew I had to advocate or I should advocate, I could. But it made me realize for those that may not have the information, the skills or the capacity or be in a space to advocate, that means they're not getting the support that they need, right? And so it's really eye-opening that um, supports are needed at so many junctures in order to support a woman to just get comfortable with breastfeeding. In order to meet that six-month mark that you had brought this question up at. Would you mind sharing a little bit about, for you personally, what that looks like having to advocate and, yeah, if anything surprised you or frustrated you? Yeah, so one of the things that we know in my doing the work that I'm doing is that there's a great range of knowledge and skills around breastfeeding among medical providers, So our work is to support um, facilities so that there is more consistent standard knowledge around how to support a woman to breastfeed. So having certified lactation consultants, having IBCLCs available to support a woman to breastfeed versus just acknowledging and identifying someone on staff that night to be the breastfeeding person who may not necessarily have the credentials or experience to actually provide that appropriate support. So I share this all because as I say to all my clients and colleagues, when they are seeking support for their first time as a first time mom is to make sure that you are working with someone that has a certification because it makes a big difference. Um, And that when I personally was going through and getting care while I was in the hospital, I had a lot of people um, that were providing supports to me um, from breastfeeding to childcare to my maternal care, like there was a lot. I felt very, I mean, we live in Massachusetts. Um, we have a lot of resources available to us. And there was a wide range of supports that I was receiving around breastfeeding. And I'm also a certified lactation consultant. I received my certification. Um, and so it was one of those things that I knew when someone was helping me that that was not necessarily appropriate what they were doing or how they were showing me or how they were manhandling me in a way that did not feel good or comfortable. And again, I'm, I recognize that I have probably above average knowledge around what this should be like and that I needed to say, no, when is my CLC or IBCLC coming in to see me? Right. And asking for that person. Um, and then even knowing when I transition home. That pain is an indicator that I needed to work on latch and that I needed to seek support, right? And like those little things were nuggets of knowledge that I had because of my work and my experience that it 
it made me realize how important it is for other mothers to have that. And it's so interesting that they would kind of have this like makeshift support available. Just be like, oh yeah, this is the designated like breastfeeding support person. But the fact that they're not actually like fully trained and an expert in that, I think is really telling of the lack of value in that. Yes. So not support and fund a position where, okay, we're going to invest in this and we're going to go 100%. And I think it ties back to your question around culture and norm and supporting it. And, and through the decades, our society has evolved where we have not supported breastfeeding in a number of different ways as a society, as um, institutions, medical practices, you know, so there have been things that have been introduced that are supposed to be for the betterment of the child and mother that have actually decreased our ability to breastfeed, whether it's formula or separation or not rooming in, cesareans, like all of these things contribute to us not having that natural immediate opportunity to connect with our infant and then have ongoing supports afterwards because we don't have the supports in our community or our families because of the way we live these days, right? And so it does raise that question of how can we create better supports? There is room for improvement. There is, and what we do know as of 2011, there was a Surgeon General's announcement that supported breastfeeding and it was a huge push. It was really a wonderful call to action to improve breastfeeding. It was the first national agenda that was put forth to reach personal breastfeeding goals. And there were 20 strategies that were around actions and implementation for mothers and families that included communities, healthcare, employment, research, surveillance, and public health infrastructure. So it was a comprehensive look, and that came out in 2011. And I think that momentum, supported by Healthy People 2020, identifying various goals around breastfeeding, really started to add the the political will that was required to get breastfeeding the supports that they needed. Um, And so more and more quality improvement that I'm doing is around supporting providers at multiple levels, community, hospitals, et cetera, so that they can build up their capacity, their knowledge, their confidence, support women breastfeeding. Um, that's really great to hear. I hadn't even heard about that 2011 Surgeon General um, shift, so that's that's excellent. You just mentioned this a little bit, and I was curious if we could just go a little bit deeper with this, is how the attitude toward breastfeeding has changed in the U.S., yeah, I mean, what did this look like 50 years ago, 100 years ago, even 20 years ago? What What's going on? I think there are historians um, that could probably do this better justice than I. What I can tell you is that it's complicated and that what we can see from the data is that there are certain um, segments of the population that we can, over time, see how... Um, has persistently low breastfeeding rates because we know breastfeeding has been tied to improving health outcomes. When there are lower rates in certain populations, that means those populations are not benefiting from breastfeeding and that you can also see um, worsen health outcomes in those populations. So more specifically, we see that there are the lowest rates of breastfeeding in southeastern U.S. And some factors that contribute to that are the lack of support 
unsupportive work environments, lower numbers of hospitals that are baby-friendly, higher rates of African-American women in these areas, and they have less interventions like peer counseling or um, support groups to get them into prenatal groups. Um, And so really thinking about how can we support certain populations, whether they're African-American women, teens, single moms that have for a number of um, decades, we can see the trends, that they remain persistently low in being able to breastfeed. How can we better support them? And the research has shown there is evidence in the effectiveness of peer counseling, especially when you're engaging communities of color, when you're really looking at breastfeeding support groups that include black women for black women, as an example, and that you're targeting your intervention specific to the population that you're serving, like we are trained to do in public health. So it doesn't get to your question of why and what are the historical. There are a lot of historical factors, and I won't be able to get into it now, but I do think that um, because there is a slight upward trend in the initiation of breastfeeding, that's great. However, we have continued to see significant disparities, um, significant disparities among certain groups in their breastfeeding rates, again, by um, race, ethnicity, age. And, and being able to address those disparities, I think, is a really important piece to this work. Absolutely. Um, so within those racial and age um, inequities you just mentioned, I'm curious, do we know if there is a difference between moms who are born in the U.S. and moms who are born elsewhere? Um, I mean, obviously, being born outside of the U.S., you can be from a million different places, and you know, but generally, does, does that look different between those two groups? Yes, yes. So breastfeeding in developing countries tends to be higher. I don't want to do a generalization, but what we do know is that immigrant mothers tend to have higher breastfeeding rates than American-born first and second generation. And so there's something that's happening culturally and in our community where first and second generation um, women and and obviously more um, that have been here for their families have been here for generations, they have lower rates. Yeah, because going back to my point earlier, I, I've mostly traveled in Latin America, mm-hmm. and I feel like, yeah, the context I've been in there, it is just so common, you know, oh, to yeah. be on the street, and just someone pops out their breast and starts mm-hmm. feeding, their, feeding their kids. There's an acceptance. There's, um, I think there's a beauty and a joy that communities that have welcomed it, accepted, integrated into their being. It's, it's, there's something to it. It's beautiful, right? Like being able to walk through a park. I used to, I did some work in Antigua, um, Guatemala, and, you know, it'd be a Sunday afternoon, and I would count, you lose count how many women are just out and about breastfeeding their infants. And it's completely unabashed. They are, they are embraced. It, they are welcomed here. 
you hear more stories of people being approached and demonized for breastfeeding in public. And that's undercover. That's, you know, trying to be as discreet as possible, that people feel disgusted. And there is something that's happened over the years that shifted our cultural norm that is really sad. Over-sexualization of women's bodies has something to do with that um, shaming of public breastfeeding in the U.S.? I'm sure that there is a certain component there, but it's also the people that seem, and this is anecdotal, and this is my personal opinion, that seem to be most bothered by it are those that are most uncomfortable by it for whatever reason, right? It's their discomfort in seeing a woman's breast feeding a baby. But the reality is that every infant is dependent on another being for nurturing and support. And so part of our work, especially when I was working with Boston Healthy Start Initiative, in order to overcome some of the hurdles, the perceptions, the stigma around breastfeeding, we actually started to reframe it as infant feeding because every infant needs to be fed. And whatever you decide, whether it's breast milk or formula, we will look to support you. But we want you to be able to have the information to make an informed decision. And so moving away from this is not just a matter of breasts, but really thinking about what is the best for your child and you and how can we support you and acknowledging that we still have to do a lot of work as a society to change norms, acceptance. But the more that we have allies in the community to step up. So now you hear more and more incidences where mothers are supporting other mothers. I even just heard, anecdotally, um, another clip um, where a woman talked about how she was stopped at out and about grocery shopping by an elderly gentleman because she had, while she was carrying her baby, decided to just breastfeed him, I believe, while she was grocery shopping. And afterwards, the gentleman came up to her and she thought he was going to yell at her. And he... He applauded her. He acknowledged her and said that is wonderful and more women need to feel comfortable around that. And the more that we hear those stories, the more women feel comfortable out there. If that's for them to decide. I know for me as a breastfeeding advocate, I'm also very private. So as much as I was like, yes, I am breastfeeding, hear me roar, I was the last person to show my breasts. So, you know, it's just, you got to support a woman where she's comfortable. Right, right. You can't make just a blanket statement. Yeah. Like like with everything, there's so much, so much nuance to, yes. to this conversation. Yeah. So specific to moms who are working in the workplace, in your opinion, from what you no, our workplace is starting to become more, yeah, have more policies in place that are conducive to, you know, continually breastfeeding, kind of like you said, keeping that, um, that like symbiosis of supply and demand, or do we still have a long way to go? We definitely have a way to go. However, with that being said, the Affordable Care Act actually supported a number of provisions around breastfeeding. Uh, including break time for nursing mothers, where all employers are required to provide reasonable break time in a private, non-bathroom place for breastfeeding mothers to express milk during the workday for one year after a child's birth, and 
Women's Preventive Services requires health plan coverage for preventive services for women with no cost sharing, including breastfeeding support and supplies like breast pump and counseling. So these just two alone, and there's more that I can go into, but these two provisions really start to look at how to support employers across the spectrum that are are employing women at all economic levels. Recognizing, again, those women that are least successful with breastfeeding are more oftentimes those that are low income. And so, and working the jobs that may not necessarily give them the best benefits. And so how do we as a society create the policies so that all employers are held to the same standard? Um, and, and that costs such as breast pump that are very expensive are now, are now part of our health plan coverage. So Affordable Care Act supported women to do that. And we also now have legislation. So nursing in public now is finally legal in all 50 states, D.C. and USVI, that allows women to breastfeed in public or private location. And so anyone that's being approached in public knows that they are legally right to do that. It's astounding to me that that is even something we have to legislate, you know, because there's legislation in every single state. I mean, it's great. Don't get me wrong. And that this is recent. This is recent 50. Like, I want to say, I had to, I just updated this data, and as of last year, it was still 49, I want to say. Um, are any of these initiatives, whether it's, you know, legislative or more in the workplace or um, more in like the medical setting, going back earlier to your point about um, the disparities among different groups, are some of these initiatives kind of like targeted towards some of these, you know, subgroups that are facing, you know, higher higher barriers or from what you've seen is it a more general kind of breastfeeding support? So the ones that I just gave you, the three um, provisions and the law, when we look at those, those are more universally applied. So it's applicable to any woman that's breastfeeding. When we start to look at how to support your higher risk populations, that's when I believe we need much more targeted interventions. And I would give a major shout out to the Black Breastfeeding Caucus um, in California that's done a lot of work around this, from creating logic models, ensuring that there are resources and activities to improve specific outcomes that have measurable impacts, all to improve Black breastfeeding rates. Those kinds of community-based regional efforts that target what are the resources in our community, what are the needs of the women that we are serving, um, and how can we tailor and meet women where they're at in the community, I believe are the most effective approaches for, for improving rates among our highest risk populations. And I feel like it's also one of those things where within a community of women, if I mean, this isn't just specific to breastfeeding, but in general, any 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 practice really. If you don't know anybody that's done it, it's going to seem like this kind of exotic, out there, mm-hmm. not for me. Um, yeah, it's like why would I take that up? I don't know anybody who has. Yeah. Um, well, and it goes back to your point of what's changed, and over the generations, our family and community structures have changed. 
we ought, we our nuclear family now is typically whether it's the single mom or the the parents um, and the child don't typically have the extended family and community that we used to have generations ago. So where you need to call a lactation consultant, if you even know that, have the wherewithal or the resources to do it. Um, back in the day, you just called your mom in the next room to help you with the breastfeeding, right? And so, you know, those that makes a big impact. So this community that you spoke of, like we, it's, we've changed so much that we need to create new communities. Um, although I have family and I have extended family, they're an hour and a half away. So as a new breastfeeding mother, I had to figure out who are my community supports, who's done this before. If this is my intention, then how can I be successful with my intention? So much of the work that I'm doing with home visiting programs is helping home visitors work with mothers that have said, yes, I want to breastfeed because I have this information. Now let's talk about what supports do you need at this point before you have the baby. Let's connect you with a WIC peer council. Let's identify a CLC that we can connect you with. Where is the baby cafe? that you can go to so that they're not looking for these supports when they're in crisis, but actually have that safety network before and the confidence to go into this saying, yes, it may be a little bit difficult, but I got them on speed dial. Yeah. And I think that that whole principle you just kind of outlined really just speaks to the core of public health is, is, you know, prevention. Like let's, let's, we know what the research says. Let's, tackle this at the root instead of waiting until the problem is way too far gone that it's perhaps hopeless um, after a certain point. And that's part of the reason why I love quality improvement because quality improvement takes what the evidence says is true and closes the gap between the ideal and the application in the context. So how can home visitors that are targeting and working with specific populations look at how to adjust their breastfeeding intervention using quality improvement? So by adjusting a certain way or resource or referral, can they then actually better support a mother, right? And quality improvement then becomes the tool that empowers home visitors to then inform and change their intervention rather than home visitors or uh, frontline staff feeling like they're just um, powerless in this system, that here they actually can be part of the process to make improvements to the delivery of the services that are aimed at improving outcomes. You know, that's that's, that's great. Yeah, no, thank you so much for all the work you, you have done and are doing toward this very important issue. The last thing, so I, I know we're running out of time, if you could just give, you know, a piece of advice to maybe a, a new mom who's listening to this who's struggling with breastfeeding or is unsure if she wants to breastfeed or not. Wow, that's a big one. I would say um, the support that I give and offer to my friends um, is to get the information about the benefits of breastfeeding so that they can make an informed decision. And once you set the intention to breastfeed, then do everything that you can to identify who are the supports that you need, to get the people in your life on board, right? And so knowing that 
The partner's support is extremely critical for a woman to be successful. Whatever additional extended family, mother, mother mother-in-law, getting them on board is extremely critical. And if they need supports to get these people on board, to find those supports. And know it is their right, trust their instinct, because what they're doing, if they decide to breastfeed, is really the greatest gift that they can give themselves and their baby because of all of the benefits. Thank you so much. This has been a really interesting conversation. I'm sure our listeners are going to learn a lot. Um, So yeah, thank you so much, Lily. Thank you for having me.